This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. Sergei Rachmaninoff's golden decade of composition has come to a close. He's written three of his most beloved and lasting pieces. His second piano concerto, followed by his second symphony, and ending with his third piano concerto, which he premiered on tour in America. It's a pianist's piano concerto, full of pyrotechnics for the soloist, and Rachmaninoff dazzled audiences wherever he played it. The six-foot-six Russian enigma lands a lucrative job offer from that American tour, the conductor position of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. But he turns it down. (laughs) Rachmaninoff wants to go home. He'd been driven out of Russia by the chaos of the 1905 revolution, a revolution against the czar, as well as the privileged class to which Rachmaninoff belonged. And for most of the next four years, Rachmaninoff lived outside of Russia. Yeah, by 1910, the chaos had subsided enough that Rachmaninoff felt it was safe enough for him and his family to return to Moscow. No matter how great that American job offer was, It didn't hold a candle to being home. Home means peace. Home means getting out of the rat race. Home means being truly comfortable in his skin, where he gets to be himself and doesn't have to worry about a different language, a different culture. But it's at this time that he pens a series of letters revealing essentially the opposite of comfort and ease. Instead, he reveals his innermost fears and shame. And this is where we begin Episode 7, Rachmaninoff's Russian Period. Welcome to the Great Composer series on Rachmaninoff. I'm host Carla Walker, along with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill in the CPR Performance Studio. The year is 1910. Rachmaninoff has been pining to be home on Russian soil for four years, and he's finally returned. He and his family have a flat in Moscow, but they spend much of their time at their beloved country estate, Ivanovka. And Scott, he dives right into composing. Goes straight to what he's always loved most, vocal music. For the first time, Rachmaninoff writes a major sacred work. Now, Rachmaninoff was not a regular churchgoer, but he decides to take on one of the most important Russian texts from one of the most important Orthodox saints, the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Rachmaninoff's version of what we in the West would call a Sunday Mass. And Rachmaninoff loved every minute of writing this piece. He even said, not for a long time have I written anything with such pleasure. But it's not very well known today. Well, that's largely because church leaders banned it. They said it was too modern, so it got suppressed before it ever had a chance. 
this is beautiful, but it doesn't sound modern. Yeah, in this case, too modern means not adhering closely enough to the edicts of the Russian Orthodox Church. So, I mean, think about it. This poor guy, early in Rachmaninoff's career, he's criticized for not being Russian enough. Then he goes to the United States, and he's criticized for being too old-fashioned, too (laughs) romantic. And now that he's back in Russia... They actually ban his music for being too modern. (laughs) That poor guy, he's just going to catch a break. And it's about this time that Rachmaninoff reveals his darkest fears in a rare series of letters. You know, you don't really get to know someone until you can see them in an unguarded moment. And let's face it, Rachmaninoff has very few unguarded moments. I mean, he was very careful not to reveal much about his inner opinions and feelings. The exception, though, comes with a pen pal relationship he develops with an admirer, someone he doesn't even know. Yeah, one day he gets a letter from an anonymous woman. She challenges him on the poetry he uses as texts for some of his songs. And he's intrigued, so he writes back to her and they become pen pals. Now, he calls her Ray, you know, like as in Do-Ray-Me, this is Ray, this is her name. (laughs) And as their relationship grows, he discloses how he's frightened of everything. Mice, rats, beetles, bulls, robbers. He gets frightened when the wind howls in the chimney or when the raindrops hammer on the window. Mm -hmm. He actually called himself criminally timid and cowardly. I don't know why, but it's often surprising to learn that someone who is as successful as Rachmaninoff is and who's as confident looking as Rachmaninoff is, that inside they feel very different than the image they project on the outside. Yeah, these letters are so revealing. It's like a confessional. He tells Ray that he believes bad reviews more than good ones because, in his own words, There is in the whole world no critic more doubtful of me than I am of myself. He tells her about continuing to receive hypnotherapy to help him cope with this, but the illness hangs on to me tenaciously and with the passing years digs in ever more deeply. He's confessing his depression, maybe even anxiety. Despite all of that tremendous success so far, he's just not able to shake the grip that depression has on him. Yeah, he even begs her, teach me, Ray, to have faith in myself. And you know what? It might just have helped. (laughs) Because his next piece was the one he thought was his best of all, The Bells, based on a Russian translation of Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Bells. A poem about the cycle of life from birth to death, a concept that appealed to Rachmaninoff probably because of his intense fear of death. The first movement depicts the silver bells of birth. I love that he doesn't simply throw orchestra bells or chimes at it. Instead, he imitates the sound of bells through his expert orchestration. The poem talks about what a world of merriment their melody foretells. But for Rachmaninoff, the very suggestion of what the future holds produces, of course, 
the Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath theme that Rachmaninoff has begun to weave into so many of his pieces. Yeah, reflecting Rachmaninoff's own fear of death. But the poem, Scott, that this music is based on this very first stage is about birth. Yeah, but for Rachmaninoff, even in music about joy and birth, the shadow of death lingers in the background. Even at the climax in this movement, when the trumpets and bells are celebrating, you'll hear the strings playing. Doesn't sound terribly sad, but remember, this comes from the Dies Irae, right? In context, it's hard to hear because everyone else is so loud. Let me see if I can help point it out. When we get to the second movement, Golden Bells for Love and Marriage, this is the Rachmaninoff sound we're more accustomed to. Very rich, very sumptuous. Even here we get. It's slowed down, but the inescapable Diasiri. Even in what are supposed to be the most joyous of life's moments, love and marriage. Then we get to the bronze bells of terror and despair. It may be the most masterful part of the whole piece, but it's also the most terrifying. Rachmaninoff normally sets up an entire movement for one big payoff climax. Not this time. This movement is like a storm with wave after wave of frenetic peaks. Scott, this sounds like chaos. Well, understand, this terror isn't just an abstract idea for Rachmaninoff. He actually lived this just a few years before in the 1905 revolution. But this may also be a premonition because there's even more terror to come. The bronze bells of terror and despair. In many ways, Rachmaninoff's own terror and desperation. And then we get to the final movement, the end of the life cycle, which is, of course... About death. About and of death. of course, we're going to hear the DSE ray. We'll hear that theme where it turns into the pealing bells. But you can hear lots of little fragments of... But what really stands out to me in this case is his use of the poetry. He really emphasizes bitter end to fruitless dreaming. And then the whole line, those relentless voices rolling seem to take joy in tolling for the sinner and the just, that their eyes be sealed in slumber and their hearts be turned to dust. Oh, 
Rachmaninoff said that The Bells was his greatest work to date. And Scott, I know you agree. Why? Well, for one thing, I would say it's the most accurate self-portrait in music of Rachmaninoff's inner life, where you know he's struggling to fight these fears, this crippling self-doubt, and that real terror of death. Mm. You know, so often I think when we think of Rachmaninoff's music, we think of those beautiful themes, those famous melodies. But the heart of what Rachmaninoff felt and believed about music, I think we hear in this piece, and it is dead serious. The Iron Bells of Death, the final movement to Rachmaninoff's symphony, The Bells. Rachmaninoff's own favorite piece, a piece that follows the cycle of life from birth to death. Perhaps, as Scott just mentioned, a self-portrait of his psyche. Perhaps also, though, a premonition of the next Russian revolution. Trouble is brewing again in Russia. Change for Russians isn't happening fast enough for the working class. Things like better pay and working conditions... And also for students in the educated class, they wanted greater freedom of expression. The public's impatient with this slow pace of change is bubbling to the surface. And then Germany declares war on Russia in 1914. Rachmaninoff said war. I knew it would come. We all did. And Rachmaninoff contributed to the war effort by touring and performing in Russian cities ravaged by war, often donating the proceeds to the war effort. He saw so much suffering among the people he loved so dearly. He wanted to give them something quintessentially Russian. The result? His transcendent all-night vigil for unaccompanied choir. He bases most of the movements directly on ancient chants, and the ones that aren't direct quotes are so close in style and character that Rachmaninoff called them conscious counterfeits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, from Rachmaninoff's all-night vigil. This notion of basing the movements on ancient chant, Scott, is a safe route for Rachmaninoff, considering that his last sacred piece was banned for not being Russian enough. Well, yeah, he had learned his lesson from the experience with the liturgy of St. John. He didn't want that to happen again. It really is a composer's worst nightmare. You pour yourself into a piece of music. And then it never gets played. And this particular piece was so close to Rachmaninoff's heart. 
One movement called Lord, Now Lettest Thou Thy Servant Depart in Peace was so dear to Rachmaninoff that he requested it be performed at his own funeral. The end of this movement descends to a low B flat. Now, I'm a bass, I can sing this low D, but the low B flat goes down to all the way down there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Russia is famous for a type of singer called a basso profundo. Those are the deep basses who sing the lowest of low notes. Right, but this is so low that even the director of the choir who premiered the piece asked, Where on earth are we to find such basses? They are as rare as asparagus at Christmas. (laughs) But you can hear Rachmaninoff's Russian pride shine through when he said, I know the voices of my countrymen, and I well knew the demands I could make of Russian basses. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, the fifth movement from Rachmaninoff's All Night Vigil. Scott, this is so solemn, so reverent, so peaceful. And most of the All Night Vigil portrays this character, but one of my favorite movements adds like a shadowy yet fiery chant proclaiming Alleluia at the scene of Christ's empty tomb. Remember this. that because it's going to play an important role in his final masterpiece many, many years later. Blessed Art Thou, O Lord, from Rachmaninoff's All Night Vigil. From 1915, a piece that became an overnight success. In fact, it was performed five more times within the month at concerts to benefit the war effort. And this must have been so moving for Rachmaninoff. I mean, for so much of his life, he was criticized by Russian composers for not being Russian enough. But now, for once in his life, nobody's criticizing him, and for one brief, shining moment, he gets the accolades he values most. Rachmaninoff, the great Russian composer, someone the people he loves so dearly can be truly proud of. And to cap off this Russian period, Rachmaninoff triumphantly returns to the Bolshoi Theater, where he had been conductor back in 1904. He returns in January of 1917 to give what just might be his single greatest concert of his entire career. The halls packed, the stage is adorned with flowers, the applause was rapturous. He conducted his tone poems, The Isle of the Dead, The Rock, and finished off with The Bells. 
Rachmaninoff, the former conductor at the Bolshoi, returning to conduct what he felt was his greatest composition. But then it all comes crashing down. The 1917 Bolshevik Revolution is beginning. Rachmaninoff and his family return to their country estate, and to their shock, there are people living in it. Mm. It's been seized by the Social Revolutionary Party and declared communal property. This is his beloved Ivanovka. This is a sacred place for him. Now stolen from him. He left and said he would never return. And in fact, the Bolsheviks eventually burned it to the ground. Where did the Rachmaninoffs go? Well, for a few months to Crimea, where it was safer, but then back to Moscow. But at this point, the situation had become even more dangerous. So he made his family stay in their apartment 24-7 because there were rallies and gunfire happening outside their building. And Rachmaninoff helped keep guard over the building at night. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, he's watching his beloved Russia disintegrate around him. In a stroke of sheer luck, though, he gets an offer to perform in Sweden, and he uses the opportunity to flee. So he and his family head east on a train, and when they get close to the Finnish border, they travel the rest of the way in an open sleigh with pretty much just the clothes on their back and a few precious scores. When they arrived in Stockholm, Rachmaninoff said they were too tired to laugh or cry. It was, after all, Christmas Eve. That is incredible. They are running from danger. They fear for their lives. But Rachmaninoff is wealthy by this point in his life, and that would make this new start a little easier. Uh, Was wealthy. To leave Russia, he had to forfeit everything. He basically left with the cash in his pockets. One of Russia's greatest living composers forced to flee the revolution again. But this time, it's for good. Yeah, he always wanted to go home, but his true home, the Russia he once knew and loved, was gone forever. And he never returned to Russia. Mm. And the all-night vigil, the piece he worked so hard to make sure would be a gem for the Russian Orthodox Church? Banned. Within a year of Rachmaninoff leaving Russia, the revolution saw the rise of the Soviet Union, where all religious music was banned. The vigil would end up being the last great piece of Russian sacred music. It's been said, no composition represents the end of an era so clearly as this liturgical work. In fact, Rachmaninoff became a persona non grata in the Soviet Union. Yet generations of Russians grew up not knowing Rachmaninoff's greatest contribution to the Orthodox Church. I'm so grateful it's been restored and we can hear it now. With his family in tow, the clothes on their back, a few scores in his briefcase, 44-year-old Sergei Rachmaninoff has to start completely over. And that's where we will pick up next time on the Great Composer series on Rachmaninoff from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. In the CPR Performance Studio, I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.